Welcome everyone to Infectious Conversations. I'm Candace DiMatteis, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease. And this is our podcast series. Through Infectious Conversations, we're having discussions with medical, healthcare policy, and other experts to get a grip on how to squash superbugs. Our goal is to better understand the threat, antibiotic, and other antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, pose and the need to address it now? And how can we work to improve health outcomes for ourselves and our families? Today, our focus is on a serious and often fatal condition called sepsis. We have two important leaders from the Sepsis Alliance, Tom Heyman and Dr. Sandy Kao, with us to tell us more about sepsis, particularly what it is, why it's so dangerous, and how can we prevent it and treat it effectively? We'll also be talking about the relationship between sepsis and antimicrobial resistance, health equity issues relating to sepsis, and most importantly, what is and can be done to help all people stay healthier. I have the pleasure of introducing our two guests, First, Dr. Sandy Kao is a board-certified family nurse practitioner with more than 15 years of healthcare experience. She's also a member of the Sepsis Alliance Board of Directors and the Sepsis Alliance Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Advisory Committee, which developed Sepsis Alliance's Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Pledge, which we'll hear more about today. Dr. Kao specializes in the areas of clinical, academic, and executive leadership. As a practicing clinician, she cares for patients across the care continuum, from pediatric to geriatric patients. During her career, she's taught undergraduate and graduate nursing courses and has managed research programs in infection control education, chronic disease management, and social determinants of health. Currently, Dr. Kao is an active healthcare consultant and principal consultant of Kao Health Consulting. Also joining us is Tom Heyman. He is president and CEO of the Sepsis Alliance. This organization works to improve sepsis awareness and care through three main pillars, public education, healthcare provider education and training, and advocacy. Some areas of focus for them include equity, diversion, inclusion, antimicrobial stewardship, and innovation. Tom has been a part of the Sepsis Alliance since 2007, serving as president and CEO since 2013. Leading Sepsis Alliance's drive to increase awareness, he led expansion of sepsis.org, to serve more than 2 million patients, loved ones, caregivers, and members of the general public each year. Tom also led the organization's efforts to launch the Sepsis Alliance Clinical Community and the Sepsis Alliance Institute, which have trained more than 40,000 health professionals. He's also helped to launch Sepsis Alliance Voices, which is a platform for national and state advocacy. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you, Candice. Thank you, Candice. Happy to be here. Tom, let's start with a little bit of background because a lot of people may be like uh, wondering what is sepsis and why is it so important that everyone understand what it is? Yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of people still don't know what sepsis is, even though it is incredibly common and incredibly 
dangerous. So sepsis is your body's reaction, overwhelming reaction to an infection. That can be any kind of infection. It could be a bacterial infection we hear a lot about, a viral infection like COVID-19 is a viral infection. And it can also come from a fungal or a parasitic infection. And it's your body's reaction to that infection that starts to harm your body in reaction to the initial infection. So a helpful way to think about it might be it's like a bee sting. You know, if you get stung by a bee, it hurts for sure, but it doesn't really cause any major problems unless your body has that anaphylactic reaction to the bee sting. Similarly with sepsis, it's not the infection that's bad unto itself, but it has the potential to lead to sepsis, which is when your body can really develop problems, organ failure, and that can lead to amputations in many cases and death in too many cases. Dr. Ko, in your practice, and it's said from your bio that you've done a lot around stewardship and infection control, how common is sepsis and how, how concerned should people be? Yeah, thank you so much. That's such a great question. Um, I think, you know, one of the issues is that uh, as medical providers, um, it sometimes can be difficult to identify sepsis. Um, you know, just as with many co conditions uh, with sepsis and antimicrobial resistance, there are huge disparities in how we approach care. Um, and so one of the things I do is to work with educating providers. I, my background is in oncology. And so when my patients are sick, they are very sick. Um, as much as we can, we really need to differentiate and know the difference between a common cold, a UTI, a upper respiratory infection, pneumonia, and full-blown sepsis. So it's really educating about some of the preliminary signs and symptoms, the best practices um, and evidence-based approaches to treat sepsis, um, and really education across the board to patients and providers alike. It is very common. I think it's one of the things that's just underdiagnosed and kind of diagnosed and coded under different presentations and other infections. Tom, you mentioned that sepsis can arise from different types of infection, including viral infections like COVID. Has COVID changed the way your organization is, is doing its outreach and awareness? Has that driven greater awareness or interest in sepsis? It has, and you know, perhaps a, a positive outcome, if you can talk about it in that way of this horrible pandemic, is it really has increased the public's attention and awareness of infections and the risk of infection. So I think there is an increased understanding that it's important to prevent infections, and that can be done through vaccinations. It can be done through proper hygiene and making sure you see a, a medical professional if you're not feeling well. So I think it has, in, in that respect, um, increased awareness and hopefully heightened um, some urgency around the need to um, prevent infections and you know, have a greater understanding of the impact. So certainly our numbers are, are going up because of COVID. Um, we know that um, one of the most common reasons that a COVID patient ends up in the hospital and in trouble is because that COVID infection has turned into sepsis. So it's really important for people to understand that infections are, are you know, can really present um, a dangerous situation to them and be, be conscious of the signs and symptoms of sepsis. And to that end, the organization Sepsis Alliance has developed a mnemonic called TIME. And the, the four letters stand for common symptoms that you or a loved one may be 
in a septic situation. And the T stands for temperature high or low. Uh, I is signs of an infection that could be painful urination, that could be an open wound, it could be a, a really bad toothache, it could be um, any number of things. Um, M is for mental status change. We often hear of people who just weren't themselves. You know, it wasn't, they, they weren't acting like they usually act, some kind of mental status change. And then E is for extremely ill. We often hear people say they never felt so sick in their lives. They thought they were going to die. And if you're hearing somebody, you know, talk about these things, um, you really need to be thinking about sepsis and get some medical care urgently. Let me walk back through that. So it's time, temperature, infection, mental status, and extremely ill. Did I get that? that that's correct. Great. Oh, that's, that's really helpful. Um, Dr. Kao, one thing that in your bio, it talked about stewardship and infection control. And I know our organization is really focused around antimicrobial resistance, but I'm not quite seeing the connection. Can you help me connect how sepsis is related to those to stewardship and those other issues? Yeah, happy to. There is actually a direct correlation. You know, our bodies, um, when we're experiencing sepsis, it's really this overwhelming dysregulation that's happening due to this infection. And it oftentimes will require antimicrobials. Um, yes, you can have viral um, episodes that cause sepsis, but there also can be bacterial um, episodes that will cause sepsis. So when you think about antimicrobial resistance and, se and sepsis, um, there, there is a direct correlation. You wanna ensure that we are giving the appropriate medication to treat the infection. And fewer infections are responding to antimicrobials nowadays, and we know uh, this to be true. More infections are, are developing into sepsis. Um, so more sepsis patients experience adverse outcomes, including death. Uh, again, this is really, um, a part of uh, the medical community, physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, PAs alike, to really educate ourselves better around best practice and medication use for sepsis um, and not overusing antibiotics so that when we need them to work for these uh, disease processes that are very complicated to treat, they actually do their job. Thank you, that's incredibly helpful. I know that the Sepsis Alliance has been a leader in so many ways, and one I wanted to talk a bit more about today is the pledge. Um, as I understand it, a little over a year ago, the Sepsis Alliance issued a pledge to improve equity, diversity, inclusion in your work and in your organization, and not just focused internally, but then encouraged others to get involved and join the pledge. So um, Dr. Kao, in your experience, what are some of the issues relating to health equity and diversity inclusion that affect sepsis that kind of led to the development of this pledge? Yeah, so one of the things we see in sepsis and really um, like many chronic conditions, um, there are large gaps related to patient outcomes, um, specifically when we're looking at race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, to name a few. We know that individuals of color, those who are experiencing poverty, uh, and those who live in communities that are historically, um, you know, just underprivileged and lack high quality care, they also are likely to not know enough about sepsis, including things like signs and symptoms and preventative measures. 
So Sexist Alliance, we conducted a survey um, and though we found out that those who identify as white, about 67% of those individuals were more likely to have heard of the term sepsis. Uh, those who identified as black, Asian, Hispanic, 57%, 60%, and 63% respectively, were less likely to um, have heard of or know what sepsis was and were able to define them. Um, and so for those reasons, um, we also know that individuals of color oftentimes carry a higher burden of disease related to death, um, related to morbidity, we know that uh, there are systemic issues that have a lot to do with it. Um, oftentimes patients of color may not be believed when they present in the emergency department and they're having pain, shortness of breath and having difficulty with their care. Um, and we know that's due to issues around structural racism. And so you, when you combined many of these factors, we, uh, including socioeconomic status, social determinants of health, access, language, insurance, geographical location, um, we know that the outcomes um, and, and the rates of poor outcomes are compounded for these individuals. Uh, and so it's really important that we do the work that we do with the pledge to help continuing dissemination, uh, disseminating all this information. That's, that's great to hear, but incredibly disturbing as well, particularly the structural barriers that you talked about in racism in terms of patients not being, or being dismissed, I guess, and when they report these symptoms. Tom, I know that a lot of the messaging and awareness raising that Sepsis Alliance is doing, um, it, I'm sure is being influenced by some of the feedback that you're getting around the pledge and, and trying to address um, these disparities and health inequities. So can you share a bit about some of the messages that you've uncovered along the way and that you continue to learn and develop in working with others around the pledge? Yeah, I think there's a lot of education to be had. And when we were, we were actually asked by some of our, one of our key industry partners to consider taking a pledge out to the healthcare industry to raise, you know, elevate the conversation and get more organizations involved and actually making a pledge, not just signing their name, but actually committing to doing something um, in service of improving equity within their organizations or the work they do, whether it's clinical trials or their hiring practices. So at that time, Sepsis Science did not have an internal equity, diversity, and inclusion pledge. And we said, well, it doesn't seem right that we're going to ask others to do something we haven't done ourselves. So we developed a pledge for Sepsis Alliance to make sure that we were focusing on this as an issue. Sepsis is something that is a public health crisis, but we also recognize and need to recognize that it disproportionately affects certain communities. So we developed our own internal pledge and commitments to improvement across a number of areas. We're holding ourselves tangibly accountable to those, um, those commitments. And we were able then to bring it out to the industry. And we have, um, you know, we have signed on many, many uh, signatories who companies and organizations who are committing to do better. So it's really great to see and, and um, you know, our, our brother and sister and peer organizations uh, stepping up with us to identify this as a, a necessary uh, piece of work and, and committing to it in a tangible way. That's fantastic news and good to hear. Dr. Keo, um, in your experience, you talked about some of the biggest challenges um, that affect sepsis and, and health equity and these disparities that are experienced, particularly by communities of color. 
sometimes when we talk about health inequities, though, people seem to get a little overwhelmed, like, oh my gosh, it's the, it's a mountain to climb. We can't, you know, we can't overcome this. The reality is, you know, things like the pledge and taking small steps can make a difference. I was curious from your perspective, what are some things that, that people could do to help, you know, bridge those gaps that you talked about, be they, you know, healthcare provider or just a concerned, you know, individual, any suggestions for, for how they might get involved? Yeah, no, this is a great question, Candice. You know, one of the things that I encourage my own students to do is really identify some of our own biases, right? So I talk about implicit bias. And so how does that impact how we view patients and how we care for them? And the fact of the matter is we all have biases. It's just ingrained in us. There is nothing we can do to stop that from happening, right? It's just something that's going to continue to happen. But when we are able to kind of take a step back, look at how our biases are impacting patients poorly, and how can we adjust some of those thought processes and and shift the narrative um, to improve outcomes. So I always encourage students to take the IAT, the Implicit Association Test, uh, through um, Harvard, and it's free, it's online. And it's always pretty interesting to see the results. Um, And I was actually quite surprised to see what biases that I even held that I was not aware of. And that's why they call it unconscious bias, right? Um, And so as we are making ourselves more aware, we are also, um, we're also needing to educate ourselves um, about these disparities um, and really understanding that um, what we used to uh, believe like education and income being protective factors for folks of color, we know that that's not true. Um, When we think about uh, maternal mortality, And we've seen uh, in the news uh, cases with Serena Williams, for example, um, you know, it's just because you're uh, rich, famous, that you have money um, and you're educated does not mean that that's going to protect you from having a a negative event take place due to bias. Um, I've had my own experience um, in labor and delivery and giving birth to my own children. And so these are always, I think, opportunities for us as consumers uh, because I'm also, although I'm a clinician, I'm a consumer uh, just to stay informed, stay educated, and really hold each other accountable. If I see counterparts, colleagues um, doing things that might be contradictory to what I know to be true and best practice in, in caring for patients, and particular patients of color, I love to, I don't want to call it calling out, I think that has a negative connotation, but really calling them in and saying, um, hey, do you recognize perhaps we are viewing this patient this way because of this, and it really might have an outcome that's um, not favorable. So let's talk about other ways to approach this. So um, really being bold and having uh, vulnerable, transparent conversations um, amongst clinicians is key. And as patients and consumers, we also need to be courageous, bold, and advocate for ourselves and asking some of those really difficult questions. Oh, Tom, go ahead. Yeah, if I could add in, um, you know, we recently, Sepsis Alliance recently conducted a a literature review to really try to better understand um, the impact of disproportionate care and outcomes in sepsis. And um, we have that document on our website now, sepsis.org. And just some some of the statistics that really drive drive our work is, you know, for one, Black individuals twice as likely uh, to die of sepsis than white individuals, twice as likely to die. Um, children, Black or Hispanic, approximately 25% more likely to die than white children. 
American Indian, Alaskan natives, um, 1.6 times more likely to die from sepsis than the national average. So these are these are huge, dis, you know, uh, proportionate, uh, uh, significant differences. So some of the work we've we've taken on, um, we have actually uh, hired a um, health equity communications intern and um, developed a program. We're really reviewing all of the content on our website and our materials to make sure that uh, you know we're not, we're not only showing white faces on the on the materials. We're translating much more of our patient-facing materials into Spanish and now Chinese. So we're really trying to take steps to remove at least some of those obstacles to education and knowledge around sepsis so that we can, we can make the public more aware more generally. You heard the, the stats from Sandy about um, you know, communities of color being less aware of sepsis. Mm -hmm. So we can help bridge that gap and we can also make our healthcare providers more tuned into the fact of seeing you know, all of their patient population in a similar way. And that goes across ethnic and racial uh, kind of categories, but also, you know, people with intellectual disabilities. We're working on a program now to help healthcare providers and, and family members help um, intellectually disabled adults and children with the communication challenges that present when they, when they have a medical issue. And uh, we know that intellectual disabilities are the number one comorbidity for bad outcomes of COVID because it's very difficult for healthcare providers who aren't properly trained to understand what's going on with that patient. Those are fantastic achievements in a short period of time. And I love the introspective nature of them, but I know that as we talked about earlier, that it's also externally reaching. Um, Tom, can you share some of the highlights since releasing the pledge? Um, maybe from some of the organizations who've joined the pledge? Yeah, it's, um, you know, so we've seen a number of things from different organizations and it, it's really exciting. So, you know, the, the potential actions for organizations are, you know, to set a target for inclusion of racially and ethnically diverse participants in clinical trials. We know that clinical trial representation um, and diversity has been a real challenge. Um, you know, developing a, a targeted communication strategy like Sepsis Alliance has done for improving public education in underserved communities and, you know, training for healthcare providers on implicit bias. So that can be done within healthcare institutions. They have a lot of power to make change happen. And, you know, incorporating a pledge like this into, into the DNA of organizations to make sure that it's something that you know, is not just checking a box. It's something that the organizations actually commit to. And so we're excited about what we're seeing come back and the commitments that are taking place. And, you know, it, it, once people engage with it, they really see, yeah, this is something we should be doing and, um, and commit our organizations to. What about you, Dr. Kayo? What would you like to see? What do you see ahead for Sepsis Alliance as a board member and, and these efforts around equity and diver um, diversity and inclusion? Yeah, no, I think, um, thank you so much again for this opportunity. Uh, you know, I think things like this, for us to be able to share on various platforms for the word to get out about Sepsis Alliance, um, about sepsis, um, and how it's so simple for us to connect the dots, um, you know, through curricular changes. Um, I think looking at this from an interdisciplinary approach is also going to be key. How can we educate our nurses, our respiratory therapists, our physical therapists, our physician colleagues, you know, at the same time to kind of look out 
for some of these really common signs and symptoms and help, you know, prevent um, serious septic uh, events and, and hopefully death um, in terms of prevention. Um, you know, and for folks to take the pledge, I think that you don't have to be a healthcare organization or a healthcare worker to understand the severity of the nature of sepsis. And so sharing this broadly with our um, partners and with our you know, communities, um, just with, the, with people overall, um, and just kind of sharing this type of awareness and education. We see so much of that work being done around cancer. Um, you know, we see this work being done around cardiovascular health, and it's, it's a very preventable thing in terms of infection prevention um, in the hospital setting, making sure that we're cleaning aseptic, uh, keeping aseptic techniques, washing our hands, educating our patients and our family members. Um, so I, for me, I think it, uh, it just would really mean uh, everything just to have um, healthcare providers be, have this information roll off their tongue and have the awareness about it and really looking at positive outcomes and improvement for our patients in this area. And Candace, if I could give an example of, of, you know, a specific organization or two that have done, you know, really outstanding work in, in, in the EDI area. One is, you know, Baxter. Um, what they've done is create a black kidney awareness uh, resource and education toolkit. And this contains kidney health information, which is aimed at addressing the fact that black Americans are almost four times as likely as white Americans to develop kidney failure. Um, so really important communication, getting out in a, in a very targeted way and focused way. Um, another is the Stuart Levy Center for Integrated Management of Antimicrobial Resistance at Tufts set up an internship program specifically for underrepresented groups in biomedical education. So they're really kind of, you know, neat things that can be done and aren't necessarily a big heavy lift and they all can help make things better. I like how unique, how they're tailored to the individual organization as well. And, and that was, I like how you set that up. So you've encouraged people to take a pledge, but then enabled them and empowered them, if you will, to tailor it to their individual circumstances. Yeah. One thing that I neglected to ask at the top is how, do you know how many cases of sepsis occur in the U.S. every year? How many people, how many lives are lost? I know the COVID-19 pandemic probably affected that significantly, but I just was curious about that. Well, you're talking to the right people, Candace. Um, <laughs> we, we unfortunately know this number. Uh, sepsis is extremely common, and I think most people will be really surprised. We're talking about 1.7 million cases each year in the U.S. alone, 50 million globally. Mm. And of that number, 350,000 are dying. So 1.7 million cases, 350,000 people dying. And one in three people who die in a hospital are dying with sepsis. So you're really talking about something that's incredibly widespread, much more common than stroke or heart attack, and much more deadly than either of those, but just not as well known yet. And I think that's our, our collective job is to make you know, everyone, public, healthcare providers, our government uh, agencies, uh, policymakers aware of this fact that it's a huge uh, public health crisis, a huge burden on, on society in terms of, of death. And over 14,000 patients require amputations each year. So there's a huge impact in mortality and morbidity cost. It's the most expensive cost of hospital care in the country. 
So when you think about, you know, uh, an optimal bipartisan issue, sepsis, you know, and, and the fight against sepsis is really a, a great way to save lives and save resources all at the same time. So we appreciate your support and the opportunity to share this kind of information. Well, and to your point, across all ages, all age groups. That's right. And I, th- I think that's important to know. And thank you for that. It's not just older folks, uh, certainly um, older adults and, and very young children and those uh, with comorbidities or, um, you know, or um, uh, on, on certain drug therapies are more likely, more susceptible to get an infection. But this can happen to anyone. In fact, the organization Sepsis Alliance was founded by um, an oral surgeon in Tampa, Florida, who lost his perfectly healthy 23-year-old daughter following outpatient surgery. And, you know, it was just a a tragic event, but it just tells you that um, it can really happen to anyone. It can start with urinary tract infection. It can start with cellulitis. It can start with a bug bite. It can start with any type of insult to the body. And um, in fact, sepsis takes more children's lives in this country than cancers. And it's the number one cause of pediatric death globally. And globally, for one more statistic, um, it takes more lives than cancer globally. So we really have under, under talked about sepsis relative to its impact. It really is shocking when you put it that way, that it's not as well known or, um, and, and it's preventable as my understanding is, um, if caught early and or very treatable. Yeah, I think the key and, and like Dr. Kao's point of view on this, but you know, it's, it's preventable through, through vaccinations, which are the single best way to prevent getting uh, an infection like, like COVID or pneumonia or other things or flu, um, which can all lead to sepsis. And um, it can be treated if, it, if it's identified early and treated early, um, people will have good outcomes. Dr. Keo, I'm going to start with you. We always like to ask our guests as kind of a parting shot, if you will, for anyone listening to the podcast, if there was one or two things that they were to walk away with um, to help them or help their families or help their practice if they're a healthcare provider, what would you hope they would take away? Yeah, thank you. I think one of the messages I'd like to share is, um, it can happen to you. Um, you know, none of us, I, I don't want to say that scary. I don't want to scare people by saying that. I think one way or another, we all know someone who was impacted by sepsis. Um, my story is, uh, my family is from Haiti. And um, in 2004, my mother actually ended up passing away when we were in Haiti. Um, and she essentially became very septic and we didn't have any of the resources to be able to care for her properly. Um, and so when I think about how that has uh, affected how I take care of patients and see patients and even the work I do around global health, um, there is a huge impact that can be made. Um, just one story, just one anecdote, um, you know, just one line of education about washing your hands and taking a vaccine and, you know, doing some type of health promotion and infection prevention can save a life. Um, and, it, you know, when I think about the lives that could be saved, it's really more than the state of New Jersey where I live. It's more than just the Northeast region, more than the U.S. You know, we can really make a difference um, all over the world. So I, I just hope that folks understand that it's closer to us than we think, but we can also make a difference. So thank you. Thank you for that. Tom Heyman, same question. What would you yeah. hope you would walk away with? 
Yeah, this is about real people, you know, given these numbers, you know, the math works out to one in three of us will get sepsis in our lifetimes. And if we don't change the way we're doing things, one in 15 of us will actually die of sepsis. So that, you know, you think about a small group at a family gathering and it gets real very, very quickly. So again, we don't want to frighten people, but we do want to enlighten people. So that's one of our mottos. We want to enlighten, not frighten. And um, I would encourage everyone listening. Um, sepsis.org is, a, is a, a wonderful resource. There's videos and brochures and downloadable things um, all for free. And um, for any organizations interested in the health equity pledge, um, the website is healthequitypledge.org. Thank you, Tom. You stole my thunder. I was going to suggest uh, that people visit those websites as both Dr. Kao and Tom Heyman have suggested. Um, information is power. And the more knowledge you have about sepsis, you can help uh, avoid it and recognize it in your um, loved ones and get them the help they need. So thank you so much to the Sepsis Alliance and particularly Tom Heyman and Dr. Sandy Kao for joining us today for another infectious conversation. Thank you both. Thank you, Candace.